Welcome to the Leadership Trap Podcast, recorded live here in Austin, Texas. In this podcast, we explore the conditions that lead to surviving and thriving in a successful leadership role. We examine the traps that can cause leaders to stumble, bumble, or get ambushed in ways that may or may not be of their own making. I'm Dr. Chris Petrovka, and with David Hewen of Austin WorkNet, we have a conversation with each leader that explores the traps that they have encountered through their leadership journey. Hopefully it brings a new perspective to your role as a leader and helps you navigate your own way through the traps. Thanks for joining us. Let's jump into the trap. Wow, David, this was a great guest. Heather McKissick, so impressive. Tell us a little bit how you know her and some of her background. Yeah, this was essential, I think, for the Leadership Trap series to be able to touch on the importance of mission-driven companies and the roles that uh, leaders need to play in reinforcing um, those missions. Uh, Heather brings with her 30 years of uh, being in a variety of industry sectors, state government, higher education, healthcare, semiconductor training and development, financial services, where she is now. Um, and the through line is that she has a passion for the greater good uh, that these organizations had an obligation to. So her focus is on how organizations can impact the quality of life of communities and what that can look like through the, the, the work of the companies. I love the way she uh, states on her website that she believes to move forward, we must give back. It's interesting for me too, as we had the conversation, we talked about the credit union and the role it plays in the community and these mission-driven companies. What I thought about through this, and we talked about this, was mission-driven companies doesn't apply to just companies with a mission anymore. I mean, employees yeah. are looking for, looking for companies that have a mission, something they believe in. They're making decisions about that. That was fascinating. The other thing I loved about it was the, the conversation we had about vulnerability, right? I mean, think about how important that is as a leader to have that vulnerability and as you're leading teams to be open to that and how that helps you lead groups. Another thing I really enjoyed here was this importance of how leaders represent their employees and their ambassadors of the company's values and principles. And we throw that around a lot, but the way she talked about it really stuck with me and I, I think that's the part that I walk away with the most that I hope our listeners are going to really delve into. And it's probably about a third of the way into the episode. Yeah. So sticking out with Heather McKissick, she really brings wisdom in the realm of uh, giving back and making a difference and how organizations and leaders play a role. So uh, here we have it, Heather McKissick. All right, we're here with Heather McKissick. Thanks so much for joining the Leadership Trap. Welcome. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Well, Heather, I am curious, considering your rich background, that um, our best starting point may be just by tracking your professional um, uh, early days to uh, your more current work uh, with UFCU, all of which I find interesting. And for those uh, listeners who are from the Austin area, your background will resonate with a lot of them because the brands 
that you've been involved in will be very familiar. So let's start with the early work that you did uh, as it shows up in your background. You sort of stayed on the academic side for your first few years. What attracted you to the study of humanities out of curiosity? It's a good question. Humanities. Well, I'll tell you, even though this might sound strange, being a member of an executive team at a financial institution, yes, is that I am a word person. Mm-hmm. I have always been a word person. And um, words are my numbers. So like many people, especially in financial services, string numbers together to make meaning My thing has always been about stringing words together to make meaning and what the study of that is. And so I think I was drawn to the humanities because of that, because of language and communication and the way that words help you connect to other people. Uh, So I see a through line then of your career as you moved into Uh, corporate communications and the work of organization development, because there's a clear communications tie there. Okay, I get it. So um, I had to go back and research humanities. I wouldn't call it research. I had to just bone up a bit on humanities. You Googled it, come on. What does that mean anyway? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I went through several courses in preparation for today, uh, which, yes, it was Googling. (laughs) Anyway, I did find an interesting tie of humanities to organizations' cultures, because it is a study, in essence, of cultures uh, in some fashion. So do you draw a tie of the the discipline of humanities to organizational cultures, or have I made too much of a stretch here? I don't think it's too much of a stretch. I mean, I I do tie that. I mean, if you start with that thread of saying, okay, language and words and communication are about how you connect with people, right? What is organizational culture except for a study of the people and what drives them and what motivates them and how you connect with them, right? So I, I think it's an appropriate stretch, David. And back then, I hate to say it, but, you know, there wasn't such a thing as a um, communication degree plan when I was coming up. Now you can go get your PhD in communication or organizational development. For me at that time, English and English language and writing was the closest thing. Because it was really about how do you craft a message that resonates with the audience and how do you move them to action? So really, at the end of the day, that's what organizational culture and organizational development are all about, I think. Well, and I often am in this similar space today, Heather, and I do, did get my PhD in organizational development, so I can relate See, to that. There you language, go. Which wasn't Clearly, you're a really. younger man than I. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do think about it from it, uh, how you sort of engineer human behavior. And that is done through uh, uh, primarily words and through metaphors, right? And through analogies. And that's how you you start to shape that behavior over time. So I like how you talked about the words and numbers. That makes a lot of sense. I agree completely. I mean, I, I am gratefully invited 
frequently to come and talk to alumni groups of students of liberal arts institutions or otherwise, and talk about how marketable that liberal arts or humanities degree really is. Because I believe those are some of the most transferable skills there are. And I'm really grateful that that was kind of how not only my academic um, bringing up started, but also how my career began, because I was able, um, when I was working in higher education, to learn and understand the, the application of that in a variety of contexts. And it was, I was told that it would be a hard trip to make, to make that trip from higher ed into industry. But I think that was a myth um, because I actually found it quite easy to make that trip and feel really grateful for what those marketable, transferable skills were for me, even at that time. Yeah. And that trip was from St. Edwards University to Motorola. Is that right? Now there's a leap. It was a leap. Actually, there was a there was a space in between there. I worked for the Lower Colorado River Authority. Ah, okay. Um, immediately prior to going to Motorola for a very short period of time. And then I went back to the LCRA. Mm-hmm. And that organization <clears throat> was um, an amazing organization in so many ways, still is, because not only does it take care of the Highland Lakes and the Colorado River, um, people are are not as aware of the fact that it's not just a power generation company or a, a water quality. They provide community services up and down the river. So LCRA at that time, um, I was also involved in helping with community development, which then led me to other places as well, David. Mm. I did take a brief hiatus and went to Motorola. Um, and that was the shortest um, stint I've ever had at an employer. And it was also the only for-profit employer that I ever worked for. Yeah. So uh, was that by choice or is that just the way opportunity presented itself? Uh, was it my choice to leave as fast as I could? Well, I, I'm less... <laughs> Uh, trying to dig into any dirt with Motorola specifically, oh, but go. just moving from the for-profit to non-profit world and kind of staying in that realm. I think that particular opportunity, maybe here's the first trap, because I think that particular opportunity for me was a really attractive, shiny object early in my career, where it was global in nature There were a lot of fantastic promises, and most of those promises had promise, if that makes sense. But I had come from cultures and environments that were much more nonprofit or not-for-profit oriented. And when things went south in the local economy, Motorola acted quickly to reduce their workforce, and to take other actions that just weren't in alignment with the kind of organizational culture or values that I had been accustomed to. Now, that's not to say they were a bad employer or that they were cutthroat. And 
the profit margin was what drove their decision making. And I was too early in my career to understand that and to really examine the core motives of the organization when I made that big leap. And I think that's a trap that I fell into. I fell into a shiny new job opportunity without really thoroughly understanding the values or the motives of the organization. And it didn't go well. I was grateful that my former colleagues at the LCRA took me right back and I could resume that not-for-profit oriented career without much interruption. Heather, I, I really applaud your, your courage. I've, I've talked to so many employees who struggle with that. And what I'm seeing over the last couple of years is so many more employees and, and even through interview processes that are looking for mission-driven companies, companies with good values. And it's really accelerated, right? Like even in, I was talking to one of my employees the other day and we were sharing how I, I never would have thought in my career that I'd be wanting to know, hey, which politicians has this company donated to? Right. Yep. That, that kind of stuff is coming up. But think about how many employees fall into that trap that you're talking about and then can't get themselves out. And, and often it's because they don't think that stuff through early enough. They're not as intentional about yeah. their discipline or yeah. their values to be able to recognize them when they see them in that next employment opportunity. So what ends up happening instead is the they fall into the trap of letting the job openings dictate their career path. And when that happens too much, suddenly you're halfway down a road that you never really intended to go down, and it's a lot harder to back it up. So I feel grateful that I've always had that motive and understanding that I wanted to work for a mission-driven organization, and that has served me really well. Yeah, we certainly seen, and uh, the data speaks to this, that the incoming workforce, the Z generation millennial workforce, gauge their likely commitment to a company by, in large part, the extent to which that company has defined its social good, its connectivity to its community that it serves, or in some way it's doing work that has social meaning. Uh, I assume you you see this play out. And of course, you have a keen eye for this as well. I do see that play out. I think that's absolutely true. I feel really lucky to work with a lot of young professionals, both in the credit union movement and outside of it, who make their choices based on those values or based on those organizational values. One of the challenges, however, is that is often decision-making criteria all other things being equal, okay? So if the benefits are just as good and the pay is just as good and the growth opportunities are just as good, then I'll go with the values-oriented option, right? Yeah. yeah. And so it's, I think what we formula. are- Exactly, it's a formula. And so what I, my mission is always to talk about, you can have a fulfilling, lucrative, growth-oriented career in the not-for-profit or non-profit sector. There are ways to do that. Working in non-profit does not mean having to bootstrap it, you know, and work with no budget and no resources and no staff. So many people think, oh, I have to make a trade-off. That's another trap. I have to make a trade-off 
between having a career that will pay my bills or doing something that serves a cause I care about. That's incorrect. You can do both. And that's one of the things I love most to write about and to speak about. And um, and I'm excited that many of the young people that I get to work with and some of the not so young people I get to work with, you know, have found that coming true for them. Mm-hmm. Could you talk uh, for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with the role of credit unions? I want to want to create the space for a moment to talk about that role they play in the community and uh, how you mentioned several times that they play an important role in solving social problems. Can you give our listener, uh, listeners a sense of what that means, building upon this, this nonprofit career? Absolutely. So a credit union is a really fantastic organization. What credit unions are is they are financial institutions that can do everything a bank can do. So first of all, we have to just eliminate the idea that a credit union is somehow limited in its products or services because it's not. The difference is a credit union is a not-for-profit cooperative organization. So the people who have money at the credit union are actually the owners of the credit union. That's what a co-op is, right? That's what a cooperative means. And so when you put your money in the credit union, you are sharing responsibility for the organization. You're helping to drive its mission and its future. You have a vote no matter how many dollars you have on deposit. And your money is never going into the pocket of a stockholder or a paid member of a board of directors because we don't have those. Our board is a volunteer board, just like any other nonprofit. And we don't pay dividends on stock. What we do is instead we return the margin that our organization makes back to our members in the form of higher rates on deposits, lower rates on loans, and all of the community support that we provide through partnerships and through philanthropy. So it's a financial institution that makes a a significant difference. It's all about financial health for the community. And that happens through its members. It's best does that make sense? Get, I could keep talking. It, it is. It does. It's the best place to get an auto loan too. So there's my plug. Yes, it is. <laughs> I agree completely about that. And let me say, one of the other things about the credit union difference is you can get an auto loan no matter what your credit is, most of the time, right? You don't have to have A plus credit. You can go to a credit union whose mission is to help people of poor or modest means to get ahead, to get access to the things that create financial health for them and for the communities where they live. Because we're not in it to make a profit. We're in it to make a difference. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's really powerful. And I really appreciate that. This is here in Austin. That's great. Absolutely. A lot of great credit unions in Austin. Um, I just happen to work for one of the best. <laughs> and... Um, And I'm super grateful to have found the credit union movement because it is a great example of what I was talking about before. Mm -hmm. Um, Credit unions are like any other large financial institution. There is a wide array of opportunities to work there, Mm -hmm. right? You can do anything from finance to human resources, to facilities, to IT, right? And still have that 
um, feeling when you wake up in the morning, like you're going to work to make a difference Mm -hmm. for the people that you care about and the people that they care about. Mm -hmm. And that is what gets me up every day. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys are impacting the lives of the community you serve. And I, I sense your passion around that. Let me tie this back before we get too far removed from humanity, since I did so much research on humanities anyway. Please. Take one more stab at this, because one of the things I was reading about with humanities that really intrigued me was, uh, and this came up more than once, that humanities is the study of morality and values. Um, And I'm curious, uh, tying this back to corporate or organizational values. Um, do companies have a moral code that they should operate under? So I might not speak to morals, David. I might speak to ethics, and, and we could debate the difference. Um, but I do believe that companies have a responsibility to be accountable to those they serve, whoever those people might be. So for us, it's our members. For a bank, it might be their customers. And so how do we know that we are being responsible to and accountable to them if we don't have a set of guiding principles or values to operate under, right? We do what's in the best interest of our members not what's in the best interest of the institution because we're not in it to make a profit. A different financial institution might sell you a product that you don't need, but it's going to put money in their pocket or in the coffers, right? So what's the difference between the values of those two organizations, right? So I do believe that in order for us to work and live with integrity, we need to have that compass. You can call it a moral compass or an ethical compass, but that compass of institutional values that guides the behavior of the leadership and of the people so that the people that it serves know when they are being served authentically and when something is out of alignment. Yeah, so along those I, I don't lines, know if that's what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'll take it however you represent it. That's a great, <laughs> that's a great representation. Um, how do organizations, from what you've seen, what are some best practices that ensures the leadership of, of organizations are being held accountable on how they represent the values of the organization? What are best practices to ensure that leadership accountability? Well, I think one is transparency, right? Some organizations uh, make it very clear and very public what the values that they operate under are, what the mission that they choose to serve is, how they measure their progress and success. And when you, as the consumer or the customer, can see that and interact with that on a regular basis, then it's very clear to you when you weren't treated that way or when something was out of alignment about the service or the product that you received. So I think a best practice is absolutely this business of transparency. 
You often hear about organizations that have the values on the wall, but they're not active within the organization. And I think part of that is about that kind of transparency piece. If you can't see through the wall, how do you know what's going on behind it? The other thing for me, honestly, is it's about hiring. Hmm. I I think, um, you know this, David, you know, you, your best hire is the person that has already what you cannot teach them. And that is often that value set that sense of integrity or responsibility, that work ethic that you're looking for. You hire for someone who has the values that your organization needs or wants, and you teach them the rest. And I think maybe there's another trap. We hire people because they have the technical expertise that we think we need, and we think, oh, well, they'll come along. We'll coach them to the values. But nine times out of 10, in my experience, it doesn't work. You need them to be who you want them to be and operate as who they really are in the organization. What they do, yeah, you can teach them that. You can coach them on that. Mm -hmm. But without that authenticity as leaders and that transparency as an organization, I, I don't know. I don't know how else you would accomplish that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Heather. I think that is a major trap that a lot of managers run into with their, that hiring process. And, and I would say a lot of them just don't know how, right? There, there's not training available. There's not a focus for a lot of companies on how do you ask the right questions to get to that. And there's just that sense of false confidence when you see the technical skill. It's there. And then you sort of convince yourself that that person's going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Makes perfect sense. Yep. yep. So I think David, we're uh, I think ready for the moral dilemma. Oh, oh! Is there music? Is there music? That there goes should along be with a this? I know we need yes. soundtrack. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll do uh, that. Yes, a future trap. <laughs> we'll work on it. Maybe yes. we can edit it in. So we do like to get a bit provocative um, on the moral dilemma question because. Um, the day-to-day operations of uh, every company is a human endeavor, and we're not always at our best as humans, uh, even to the extent to which uh, companies promote individuals into leadership capacities, and those leaders are not always bringing uh, their best selves to that practice of leadership. And that can extend all the way up into, I would suggest, into board capacities. Uh, board members may have their blind sides or uh, uh, some, uh, uh, some faults along the way. So let me pose one to you and get your sense of this. Let's say a, an influential longtime board member tells you that the right thing to do for UFCU is contribute equally to the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as to the MAGA movement, uh, so that there's a balance struck here um, on behalf of UFCU. How would you respond? Well, 
one of the this things high in, uh, influence, long time, well placed board member. Okay, okay. carry it. Got it. Because that board member has been there for such a long time and knows all about credit unions and the credit union movement, they also know that we are a member owned institution. So it's a different beast in many ways when your members own you because it is not a private ownership situation. And I, as a member of the executive team, not even our CEO can make the call on behalf of the membership without appropriate representation by the membership. So in a situation like that, I honestly would respond, we need to study the membership and better understand the motives of the owners of the institution before we know what the best use of their money is, because it's not my money to spend and it's not that board member's money to spend. It's our members' money. And we're not going to invest it in ways that they don't support. So I don't know if that's a clear answer to the moral dilemma, but it's definitely a trap that we could fall into if we weren't careful. If we weren't respecting the fact that we're a cooperative and those members own and guide us through the board, but not through one board member. And so they, we owe it to them to understand who they are and what they value so that we can appropriately invest um, what they've given us to be good stewards of. Yeah. And I don't, I bet you, I think you could still apply that same logic or thinking even to a, to a for-profit company in the sense of thinking about their representation. And I think that's, that's a piece that sometimes also gets missed is who do they represent, right? And, and both the employees and the shareholders. And I think that unfortunately with a lot of egos get involved, get, gets missed. It's a big, I agree with that. I mean, as an organization, we as a credit union and, Most credit unions everywhere were founded on very basic social justice principles. So if I wanted to reduce that moral dilemma down, I would say that as a credit union, we will always err on the right side of history. But the question is, which side is right? And therein lies the rub, right? So for us, we firmly believe in credit unions as a vehicle for social justice through financial democracy and through financial health. And if our mission is to lean in and invest in communities that have been historically marginalized or underserved, then which one of those two investments we might make first becomes pretty clear. And that's where we will always err, is on the side of financial health, financial democracy, and our original charge as a credit union around serving those of poor and modest means. Hey, bringing it back within the workplace, uh, Heather, what are you seeing, uh, or how are you seeing 
organizations address the impact of the pandemic on uh, organizational well-being, morale, culture, uh, and what's the responsibilities of leaders in these conditions? So what are you seeing out there? Well, I'm seeing a lot of anxiety. Um, I think on the part of everyone um, in every position, I mean, these are times of um, prolonged uncertainty like we have never known. And that kind of um, prolonged uncertainty is leading us all down all kinds of paths, right? Everybody keeps kind of grasping for when is it going to be over? And then some new twist or variant presents itself and requires us to extend the thinking around the challenge. So I think that what I'm seeing a lot of people um, leaning into longer term thinking, trying to understand if in fact this really is the new normal, then how do we establish as much normalcy as possible for the people that we lead? and still keep the lights on as an organization. So some organizations are going with extreme flexibility. Others have a different kind of organizational culture that relies more on relationships and face-to-face -face communication. So they may be leaning in more on trying to bring people back safely and in a way that doesn't aggravate the anxiety but gives people a safe space to reconnect with coworkers and continue the work. Mm -hmm. it, it also um, it reminds me of, I was reading through your blogs uh, at heathermckissick.com and you had written about the importance of vulnerability. And I think that, I, I made me pause. I think that is really essential right now, but also really challenging because I think that's part of, as you engage with others, you get them together, you talk about how you share and connect, and we've become much more transactional in this, uh, this work from home environment. I'm curious now, how, how, how do you think about that particular attribute in today's environment? And how do you not let that become a trap? That's a great question. I'm not certain about that one. <laughs> I can tell you that, you know, I think vulnerability is the only thing we have anymore that um, connects enough well with yeah. people to help them understand, I'm anxious too. This yeah. is hard for me too. I have a family too. I have kids in school too. And it's my job to make sure that the organization can still fulfill its mission. Mm -hmm. And so how can we together find the right solution? How can I help you come along? I think the only way I know how to do that is by helping people understand that it's not like I think it's an easy task, but we together have a common cause. And if we can work together to make that common cause happen, and everybody sacrifices maybe just a little bit, then we're still going to come out in the right place. Um, if this is the new normal, or if one day we find ourselves on the other side. I don't know if that answers your question, Chris, but it, it, it does. In a sense, I, I think also just thinking about the um, it's easy in a sense today to 
to become uh, one to avoid it by becoming transactional, right? It's easy to hide. It's easy to disappear. And so I think that you have to create space for that vulnerability. I know for at least a lot of my discussions with my staff, I try to create space in those one-on-ones to talk about what's going on at home. And I often have to share something myself first to signal, hey, here's a, here's a dance we're going to do. Let's share a little about what's happening in our lives. I agree. And, you know, I think that is one of the silver linings, right? Everybody says the dogs in the background and the kids running through the frame. And there are so many things about this kind of work from home or Zoom environment for those who have been lucky enough to experience it, right? That um, is a tool for vulnerability in a lot of ways, not to hide behind the, you know, uh, Zoom background, but to show the mess and the socks on the couch or, you know, whatever else it is, because we're all going through it. The thing that's challenging about that is also workforces, though, and many, many people in our um, area across the country who don't have that luxury of working from home and who have been showing up to work every single day, be they healthcare workers or frontline responders, or even the people that work in our branches, we consider them heroes because they have showed up every single day, open those doors and make sure that the community had access to their money during some of the most trying times that the community has faced. So because you have a fascination with words and language from your earliest Uh days, what words and language do you believe best serves leaders so that they can help those employees um, and other constituents they come in contact with the uh, customers and uh, employees who are customers of their leadership services? What what are the the better words, the better language under these times? This is the million dollar hack. Mm, No question. Okay. (laughs) I've got, I've got, couple of things. All right. Um, and these are more words that I say to myself. Is that okay? Sure. Um, yeah. You know, um, as a leader, the things that I keep in front of me every day. All right. And so one of them, I'm going to show you and I know not everyone can see, but I will read it out loud too. This is a huge post-it note that I wrote to myself maybe um, 24 months ago. Mm. And it says, courage, dedication, and absolute confidence. And I look at that every day. Now, do I feel that every day? (laughs) Not necessarily, right? But it's a reminder to me every day that this is what I want to feel And this is what the people that look to me for leadership and guidance and inspiration need to feel, right? Courage and dedication and absolute confidence. The other thing is something I say to myself every day. And that one is this one. And it says, today... I am who and how I need to be with all those I come in contact with. All my interactions are positive and productive. I look for the best in people and they see the best in me. 
Yeah. For our listeners, by the way, because they're listening to us on audio, Heather is is literally showing us the the, the uh, written notes she has on her desk. So so that's pretty powerful. Well, the thing for me is these days in this environment, be it local or national, people aren't are not looking for the best in each other or lifting up the best in each other. And so I start my day with this reminding myself Mm. that my goal is to have positive and productive interactions with people and that I will look for the best in them. And I keep my fingers crossed that they will see the best in me. Yeah. Because even that is a little thing, but I feel like that goes an awfully long way in this climate of contentiousness that we find ourselves in pretty regularly anymore. Yeah, I think it's a it's a major trap that a lot of leaders who are um, often just afraid to be vulnerable in a sense uh, don't take enough time to get their mind right. They don't take enough time to get that that mindset, uh, thinking they don't need to do that. But I have a I have a follow up question to I think it's interesting you you have this wisdom now, Heather. And one of the questions that I had for you was um, if you were entering um, uh, the workforce today, as your younger self, what advice w- would you give yourself? Relax about it. <laughs> Me too. I mean, you know, I mean, I think that I, at that time, I fell into the same trap that a lot of young professionals fall into, which is whatever decision I make right now is going to apply for the rest of my life. <laughs> You know, and they have a lot of anxiety around making the decision that somehow feels permanent or etched in stone. And and when I look back on my career, which I hope is in nowhere near over, but when I look back and see the the natural and the organic evolution that each choice that I made presented to me, I could have never predicted where I was going to end up. And so first thing is relax about it. The second thing, speaking to choice, is I'd like to encourage people to choose the choice that will give them more choices. So when when you're faced with that dilemma, what's the third way? Or which one of those two ways will open more doors to them? Because in my experience, that has always been the right thing. Mm-hmm. So I think it would have been nice for me to know that earlier on. Um, maybe I would have made some different choices. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of ways out of that trap. And I think we sometimes get stuck in there and think that all the doors are closed. Agreed. And, you know, Chris and I often talk about the responsibilities of senior leadership and executives to set the tone, what gets modeled gets done. You're now in a capacity, and you actually have been in various ways over the years, um, to ensure that top executives give more than lip service to whatever values they point to. Uh, um, How do you ensure that leaders are authentically represented uh, whatever has been laid out as the guiding principles or values of the organization. Uh, now that you're a partner 
to the, the overall health of the, the business, physically and otherwise? Uh, how do you ensure that those are represented in authentic ways, Heather? Well, first thing, as I mentioned before, is get the right people on the bus. Yeah. So I, I do think that's you and, you number one. Yeah, it's true. Sometimes you do. Second thing is, um, you know, consistent repetition and um, meaningful engagement with the dialogue about organizational culture and values. This is something that um, should be discussed. And I know this sounds like, you know, overkill, but daily, right? Mm -hmm. If you go through a whole day when you haven't talked to one person at work about the culture or the values of the organization, then something's gone wrong because you've made some decision or you've engaged in some discussion that will lead to a decision that is not informed by those values. So I think there has to be a culture of consistent dialogue and repetition. Um, and again, not just something that's hanging on the wall or that gets dusted off every year at performance evaluation time. Mm -hmm. And speaking of performance evaluation, I do think that um, that goes a long way. And people, especially leaders, need to be evaluated not just based on their um, activities or um, productivity, but on their leadership and on their development as a leader. And those things should play equal measure in how someone's performance is evaluated because here, that here. also tends to give its, um, it, you know, when, when that happens, people pay attention. Mm -hmm. Right. In a different way. So those those are my thoughts. When you're a leader in an organization, if it is not top of mind for you always that you're an ambassador for the culture and the values and the mission of that organization, no matter what that mission might be, then you're not leading yet. Yeah. And I think a lot of leaders don't realize that it has to be constantly reminded because the, well, there's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of things pulling us in different directions. And so you constantly have to remind uh, everybody to stay on that boat, to stay on the bus. Otherwise, they'll, they do drift off. And so I think that's that's a good trap that a lot of leaders fall into. Sort of they announce it and think it's, think it's done. Well, and there's a double-edged sword there too, right? Because who's perfect? And, <laughs> well, you know... <laughs> Except for you, Chris. Yeah, yeah. Other than you, you came to the right the, place. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean the thing is, you know, I I am grateful for a lot of things um, about my workplace. But our CEO, um, Tony Boudet, he is a longtime and very respected leader in the credit union movement and in Austin at large. And he um, gives a talk to leaders and actually to every new employee that mm. comes through. He actually meets as the CEO with every new employee. Mm. and starts that conversation about values and culture from the very beginning. And one of the things that he talks about is that it's okay to make mistakes, but the goal is to not make the same mistake repeatedly and to learn as quickly as you can after you've made the mistake, to own it, and to move on from it. Mm -hmm. 
And I think when you couple what I've said before about authenticity and values and leadership and performance and repetition and all of those things, that sounds great when you're perfect. But got to couple that with the idea that it's okay to make a mistake as long as you fess up to it fast, you learn from it, and you don't repeat it if it's at all possible. When those two things come together, I think it's a, a far better recipe for success. Yeah, nicely stated. I, I often note to leaders that employees are a pretty savvy bunch. They can see right through empty rhetoric. So I love the way you frame this daily constant representation of the the meaningful representation of a company's values and intentions. So thank you for for sharing that. Yeah. It's one of the lessons that we can learn from nonprofits and for not-for-profits, right? Mm -hmm. It comes more naturally to people Mm -hmm. in that sector. And it's something that for-profit organizations can take from that sector and benefit from. Well, Heather, we're at the end of our time. I know we could really just keep going because this has been a real pleasure talking with you. It did go fast. Yes, it does go quite fast. (laughs) It was a real pleasure talking with you. Um, And I know... I know they can find you at UFCU, but also at heathermckissick.com. Any other ways you, you want to re- remind our listeners of how to reach out to you? Oh, those are great ways to reach out to me. I'm always open for a phone call or an email. One of my general rules of thumb is that when somebody asks me for my time to pick my brain or whatever it is, I always say yes. Mm. Once. <laughs> right? Once. <laughs> and um, and it, it has led to so many great conversations and so many great mentors for me in my life. So I would welcome contact from any one of your listeners. And I'm super grateful for the opportunity to be here. Thank you again for inviting. Yeah, Thank you so much, on. Heather. Thanks for listening. Do you know a leader who could benefit from hearing about the leadership trap? Well, we hope you will share this podcast with them. And remember, give the podcast a five-star rating. Every rating helps us reach more leaders. You can find us at theleadershiptrap.org. Okay, we'll see you next time. And until then, stay out of those traps.